0: Connect with your host, John O'Leary, on social media for daily inspiration and join 80,000 friends who receive his Monday motivational email at johnolearyinspires.com. And if you haven't yet, review the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary.
1: This is the best way to make sure other people can find John's podcast and join the Live Inspired movement with us. Well, hello, my friends. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. This is John, and I am so delighted to have you with us on the Live Inspired Movement. On every podcast, we try to bring you amazing individuals to share their story, their ups, their downs, what they learned, and ultimately what it means for you. I've had the honor of interviewing guests from all around the world, experts in theater, in the arts, in uh, music and entertainment, creativity. Frequently, those guests will travel to me. Occasionally, we will do a phone interview, but never, I'm going to say that again, never have I hopped on a flight implicitly and explicitly and only for the purpose of interviewing the, the guest. And that is actually absolutely what we are doing today. Late last night, I hopped on a flight for San Diego, went to bed in a hotel, woke up early, prepared again and I am so excited to be alive, seated across from my friend, a guy that I have looked up to. He's an entrepreneur, he is an artist, he's a speaker, he's a writer, he's a husband, he's a father, he's a sojourner, he's a creative, he's a phenomenal guy, his name is Eric Wall. Again, no longer is the question, like I
0: sort of opened up in jest when I said, hey, who who here can, can draw? Because deep down, I think we've actually all known The answer to that question, since we were all all little kids, I think the question for this afternoon, the question for this year's success tour, it's actually how? How are you gonna reawaken that childlike imagination? How are you gonna reignite your own artistry as an entrepreneur? To be able, as a conductor of your orchestra, by which to be able to harmonize those, those notes, that data, those numbers, those analytics, and the space between the notes to be able to leverage and come up with new and different and game-changing ideas.
1: I think as you listen to this interview, you are going to realize why O'Leary hopped on the flight, why he is so fired up, and why you should be too. So here's my invitation to you right now. Buckle up. Get ready for the ride. Open up. I normally tell you to open up your journals. Today, I'm telling you to grab a canvas Grab a big, huge, empty, blank canvas. Grab your oils or your crayons, and get ready to celebrate the gift—the roller coaster ride that is your life, my friends. I ask you right now to sit down and get ready to welcome our newest friend, Eric Wall. Eric, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, thank you very
0: much. It's, I'm flattered that you're here. I you flew to San Diego. <laughs> I travel for a living. So the fact that I slept in my own bed last night was in my own home and drove seven minutes to the <laughs> right. studio here is, is a real treat for me. So I really am, am honored and excited to kind of dialogue with yeah. you and amplify some ideas
1: to uh, your listeners. So I'm, I'm honored. Thank you. Well, brother, you, you have raised millions of dollars for charities You've been paid many, many millions of dollars by corporate clients, and yet your story does not begin on the main stage. It, it doesn't begin in front of associations or tens of thousands screaming to your artwork. It starts, like most of our stories, in a more humble setting. So I'm, I'm going to take our listeners who are familiar, familiar with your work, and those who have never heard the name Eric Wall, I'm going to take them all back to the same starting point, your childhood. Where'd you grow up? What was life like for you as a child? Sure. I grew up in the Northwest. Father was a
0: pediatrician with his own practice. Mother was a stay-at-home mother. I was raised um, in a very conservative household that um, respected and honored hard work Mm -hmm. and discipline and structure, and I went to school and played athletics, um... The best of my abilities, so that I could get good grades, so that I could get into a good school, that I could uh, get a good job, so that I could make lots of money and be happy. And so I followed that formula to a to a T, and mm-hmm. was actually got pretty good at it because that was you know what uh, we migrate towards that which we're affirmed for, and I was affirmed for. Uh, performing well on the ball field, I was perform or er, uh, rewarded for getting good grades in school, getting twenty out of twenty on my spelling test, and so that's really the direction that I migrated. That which could be measured, yes. um, I was valued for, and so I kept moving that direction, um, and it was uh, good until it wasn't good. And what I mean, what I mean by that is this was up until I was thirty after graduated from. Uh, university uh, became a, a partner in a, a firm, and uh, th- they brokered entertainment. Uh, so I was traveling or excuse me, i was I was working with other partners that point not traveling mm-hmm. and running a business and hiring and training and doing filing and contracts. so it was it was a very business centric analytical kind of
1: and some relationships uh, driven because I was also doing some some sales. You talked about about it being good, and, and then you finished that with until it was not good. I don't want to talk about the not good quite yet. Okay. What did you like about your work when you were in corporate America and, and uh, checking the right boxes?
0: That I was moving forward, that my 401k was giving me additional security, um, you know, because we start with, with nothing, and then we try and start building security around us. So then we start... Uh, you know, if we have children, we start socking some away for their education. We um, maybe move towards buying our first home and then maybe trying to upgrade to a bigger home. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, get our, so much of it is, is centered around security and then moving up that ladder. How in my position am I moving forward in my work? And all of those metrics added up. You know, I started to make more money. I started to um, kind of move up that hierarchy, buy that first house. Uh, start socking away money for ourselves, for our kids. And so it felt like all those metrics were moving in the right direction that I would call myself um, successful. So it was good. I was, I was doing well under this system of achievement and meritocracy. I was moving at a very linear rate forward um, and it was good. How, <coughs> your identity back then, mm-hmm. what was it attached to? <laughs> that's actually a good question, because as I reflect back now, um, if we were having a conversation, I would have told you that uh, my family is the most important thing to me. Um, but I think if you looked at my my life and maybe my my checkbook, uh, you might see something different where I, I, I at cocktail parties, I would say, oh, my family is the most important thing to me. But, um, you know, I also valued hard work. To the nth degree, so I was first in, last out. I would work six or seven days a week if I needed to, and I would, you know, miss functions, family functions that which I said was most important to me, um, to continue pressing forward for uh, that which maybe I said wasn't as important mm-hmm. for me. So I was just very success-driven, uh, very purpose-driven with uh, achievement, or even dare I say, money. Uh, being kind of that measuring of what achievement was as a you know a twenty year old, that was kind of how I I viewed it. Is that that's where I was measured. So,
1: do you think what you were pursuing and measuring and being measured by back then is what most of us feel like we are pursuing and being measured and measuring today? That is a that that's the
0: kind of Socratic question. <laughs> that that is a question back to ourselves, and that's it. No one can answer that for you. You have to answer that for yourself. as you've traveled around now, I'm going to put you on the spot.
1: Okay, go ahead. As you've traveled around and as you've met tens of thousands and been in front of tens of millions of individuals, literally, are you sensing that many of us are, in some regards, Eric, living someone else's life?
0: Yes, Um, and so that is – kind of a quote, you know, don't let others dictate your future, be yourself. Who were you before the world told you what you should be kind of identity? And I, I believe in that, but I also believe that um, that um we still have great actualization lying dormant inside of us. And do I see that around the world? Yes, I, I see that. Um Tens of millions, I, I don't know if I, I could... I, Call that a number. I'm <laughs> I'm kind of just doing what I feel I'm most excited about and where I see the greatest need, the greatest void right now. Um, more so than, than anything else, in all of business, in all the world, is a need to move towards empathy and unity and love um, and away from... Uh, The three deadly P's, uh, power, prestige, and possession. But all of our systems, our education system and our corporate system, our American patriotic system is set up to reward power, prestige, and possessions. And so that's why um, it's difficult for us to understand what is our truest version of ourselves because the script we've been given for how to live is maybe just slightly off. And so I want to be a reflection of, or um, an ambassador for a more uh, connected, loving, empathetic human experience. And then if good work, if good grades, if good athletic performance, good relationships, mm-hmm. um, good financial well-being come as a byproduct of that, that's better. But that's where I've, I've kind of shifted my focus in how I perform. I translate differently. People don't know that's what they're getting. I don't come, I'm don't i not the uh, a faith, hope, love speaker. I'm a corporate speaker, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm connecting to them a little bit differently than they thought they were going to be connected with. So there's immediate... During my presentations, there is a, an aha moment. There's a wow that uh, this this wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And, you know, a graffiti artist, or even an artist, or uh, a business speaker on creativity or leadership is we're bypassing the head, we're bypassing the the brain, the cynic, um, and we're going straight to the heart. We're dropping down, and I'm, I'm getting to uh, this this element of maybe like. We talked about who they were before the world told them what they should be. Once I give them that peak, all of a sudden their mind becomes stretched and they see everything around them just a little bit differently, even only for those 60 minutes during the the presentation. But a mind once stretched never returns to its original dimensions. And so that's, um, I'm just stretching a mind, just temporarily expanding consciousness so that they can look at all of these elements of their life a little bit differently. And that's what I, I truly am excited about. You
1: know, And sometimes someone can gently help you stretch your mind. Mm-hmm. And other times your mind is profoundly stretched for you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you mentioned that um, it was good until it wasn't. Mm-hmm. So I, I wanna talk about that pivot. Your life, your business, your finances, your prestige, your power, your possessions, your life. You're, you're married, you got three babies, life is good. Mm-hmm and then something shifts.
0: Yeah. Take us back to that shift. Um, and so that was my identity or my ego was kind of insulated by these buffers of financial security, of, um, that I was performing well on my own value scale of, of meritocracy um, building. Uh, my net worth felt affirming to me. Uh, and that's when the dot-com bubble uh, wiped me out And it hit me. Uh, it blindsided me because I'd done everything uh, really conservatively and positioned myself really conservatively, financially. Uh, I'd built this fortress of security around me. Uh, but also, I graduated at a, at a really rough time, because this was 1993, because if you remember '93 to '99, everything you touched turned to gold. Um, it was this, oh. yeah, I was going to retire at age 35, you know, when I was 24, the way I was positioning, making money, um, positioning stocks in this technology boom is I'd kind of had it penciled out that I'm going to work really hard, invest very wisely, and then uh, retire about age 35, and then I'll be able to coach all my kids' soccer games and uh, travel with my wife. And uh, so that was kind of my my game plan is I was going to accelerate this curve through um, uh, enhanced living, working harder than those around me to achieve my goals earlier so that I could then live a fulfilled life of
1: exploration and wonder, uh, you know, earlier than most. And then the explosion comes. Mm-hmm. And then life changes. And then how do you respond to this? Uh,
0: not well. And that's where, I, you know, I don't, from stage, I don't talk about uh, that. It was not a triumphant.
1: No. <laughs> right. Rocky climbing the steps yeah, now with both arms
0: up. I'm letting go of this previous life and now I'm an artist. It, um, What it was was really a gut-wrenching loss of identity because I had, as I lost all of my security, all of my stuff, all of my... Um, financial well-being uh, I also watched my identity go and in my head I'd worked 30 years to accumulate and sl- and it was gone in a blink and uh, that it was it, it wrecked me um, and so I really didn't know how to deal with this and I think there's a lot of unhealthy channels I could have turned to to numb this pain, this loss of identity, and we all know people in our lives who have numbed pain um, in in less productive ways. Um, I happened to have turned to art and spoke with artists and were um, just mesmerized by their view of life, which was totally different than, than mine, their understanding, the connection to the... The, the subtle beauty around us, the space between the notes, the, the mm. quiet, soft times that take place in the morning or in the evening uh, that happen in relationships, they were amplifying these these soft things that I had put on the back burner while I went and um, worked hard achieving. And so as I, I watched them take a breath and take in what was around them, that just was a beautiful way to to live. And so, first, I loved spending time around them. Then, I took a crack at starting to to paint or create alongside them because I realized that it wasn't, it didn't need to be driven by a master's degree in fine arts uh, from the the best art schools in the country. It was about creating for the sake of creating, and that art uh, was not about creating a finished product, but the act of art was about creating thinking and so that was a, a, a seismic shift for me where i realized that art is is as accessible creativity is as accessible as i allow it to be and it's a it really from an, that moment moments that period of time that transition in between um that i i just poured myself into and felt life-giving mm-hmm. affirmation and fulfillment back from this idea of living in the moment, living for this day—you know—that was one important thing. Is I changed my definition of success from being financial fulfillment or security into what if a successful day was having a good meal with my wife and boys at the end of the day? I can, I can do that. I don't need a, I don't need a job to be able to do that. I don't need. Um, certain elements of my life to be a certain way for me to complete the day as being a success with having good communion and fellowship with my family at the end of the day. So that transition, um, I guess maybe from scarcity to abundance, is prior to that I'd lived a life of scarcity, that I needed to uh, secure what was mine uh, near and dear to me so that I could build up because there's less available out there into switching that equation to a life of abundance where it wasn't about accumulating more. For me, it was just, um, expanding, loving, serving,
1: creating. That's a wild pivot. I'm I'm even curious why a guy with three little ones, a bride who's looking at you wondering how the gas bill is going to be paid this month, would pivot in the first place to art. Were you attracted to art your whole life? Were you an artist growing up?
0: No, not at all. Um, I think I appreciated music and the art. I, I knew there was something, but you can't make any money as an artist. Um, it's not a practical living. The road for those have to be you know, extraordinarily talented and have started at age six to be able to capitalize, and so I'd missed that boat. So I, I didn't see myself as pursuing the arts in, in any sort of way. It was an ethereal concept. Uh, a whimsical concept, a concept uh, to do in your free time after mm-hmm. the real work is done. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, no, I wasn't. Uh, I, I did not pursue arts uh, in in any way, uh, really. For I, you know,
1: the periodic I did some theater. Um, what What was the moment, Eric, when it went from being a relaxation tool, an exercise, a way to get out of yourself, and uh, to create something? Just for for beauty's sake, oh that, that alone is enough into the realization you know what I think what i 'm doing here might have application beyond here uh,
0: it it happened as i artists have chinks in their armor also um, that they yes, they do live uh, from an expanded perspective, <clears throat> uh, but they also they also lack some of the discipline and structure and accountability that it takes to be able to amplify their gift or give momentum to their genius. And so these artists would oftentimes become uh, depressed. They would become self-absorbed uh, because they felt like the world didn't get them. They felt like the world, wanted, you know, all I need to do is create, and then the world will all come to me because they'll realize my brilliance. And that's just not the way uh, that works is you need to create. And then you need, well, you need to be disciplined in how you create, why you create what you create, and then you also need to create structure and amplify that to scale. You need to understand marketing, sales, uh, consumer behavior, uh, pop culture, attention. Um, and that's where artists get lower grades because they're not typically on time, on budget, on uh, within a program that the people who hold the purse strings, the people who can offer money for art or for these artists to gain traction, they haven't seduced them properly. They're just expecting the relationship to be there. And so I watched that artists need to have a little better understanding of that business life that I'd understood before. And those business professionals needed to have a better understanding of how artists think. And so that's where the lights kind of went on to me as I thought, um, it's not either or, it's yes and. And that was the beginning of this journey as I created um, this bridge between this, this cool art-driven world and this analytical, um, disciplined business world. And that's really where the presentation came together was under that realization uh, that I didn't want to just hold that information in my own studios. I wanted to share that. I wanted to share that discovery with, with others. And then how can I do that in the coolest way? And so that's when I continued studying art as a performance. Like, how can I not just Speak this into a a PowerPoint presentation, or you know, at that time behind podiums, it was how can I bring this alive? How can I activate what I have experienced and let the audience feel it in their heart and not just simply in their head? Not have three uh, actual take home items to go and uh, become more creative, but to give them um, experience. the experience that um, makes them want to change themselves. Not have me affect them or change them. This was an internal decision on their part. Did you consider yourself a presenter or a speaker before this? No, not at all. Do you remember your first presentation? I do, very well. Come on, man, bring it on. Uh, I was Los Angeles for a company called Michael's, not the art store company that we know now. <laughs>
1: that would've been a good fit. But
0: I called my, um, <clears throat> I called my wife uh, and on the phone, when I was up at the hotel right before the, the evening, I was, um, I was um, getting paid. Um, and they covered my mileage and the hotel and I, it was so, um, it was just a big moment for me and I called her to say, don't ever let me forget this moment where someone else has, has their company has paid me money to come and do a presentation to talk to their people. And I was just on cloud nine, uh, the night before excited to share the next morning and, um, yeah, that it, it, I remember it. I remember the, the well, I actually remember the presentation as well, but I remember the precursor and all those feelings before because I locked it in uh, when I made that call and I said, please don't ever let me forget this feeling of, of excitement and gratitude that I have the night before my very first presentation ever, my very first paid presentation ever.
1: You painted in front of them as well as spoke in front of them?
0: I didn't. You did no. not paint back then? Um, no, not yet. I just spoke because they're, that hadn't been invented yet, um but as my friends who then eventually came to see me speak, who from were from the artist community, they're like why why don't you you know you're talking about why don't you perform some of these paintings or do some of these paintings and uh they, I guess they didn't say it exactly like that, but that they said, why you need to make this more of a feeling and less of an analytical presentation, and so that's where I started thinking about how can I create a painting in a very short period of time, make it intoxicating. There was also a a, a gentleman who came to my uh, university and college named Denny Dent, and some of your listeners might know him. He passed away uh, almost 15 years ago, maybe 20 years ago, but he had performed these live speed paintings of uh, Hendrix or Lennon or uh, Mick Jagger, and he would... Perform them without saying a word, play the music and get standing ovations and never said a word. And I said "I thought there's something sticky about that concept. What if I could master speed painting? So it was less about photorealistic paintings. It was more how can I wow an audience in three minutes and 13 seconds? The folks
1: who don't know you, Eric, don't realize that part of your claim to fame is not only your art and the beauty of it and the way you present it and share it. But the fact that you walk on stage and at some and maybe several times while you are on stage, you speed paint and you take a blank canvas and you make it gorgeous. (laughs) Like it's, it's, it's shock. It blows me away every time I see it. So you're saying the genesis of this was the realization, gosh, I guess I could not only talk about creativity and innovation, I could kind of show them this in action and I've got to do it quickly. So I'll figure it out. Yeah.
0: And it was uh, that I I would go and it, the thing that fascinated me most about um, performance was live music experiences, live theater. It was the people who just couldn't wait for the next song, that cheered, that were uh, felt an emotional connection, an authentic connection to what was going on on stage. And then I looked at the kind of lecture circuit or keynote speaking industry, and it was driven by a... An opening thesis, uh, you know, given here's the challenge, here's the opportunity, here's the three main points that support this argument, and then a nice, tidy conclusion on the back end. And I wanted to change that experience uh, from being open, three tidy points and an, a good close into being uh, a musical experience that would maybe go verse, verse, chorus, verse bridge, grand finale, finish. And so it wasn't something that could be critiqued in a format or that I would hand someone in an outline form. It would be like a theatrical experience that you could ask a thousand people in the audience, what was the main point of that presentation? And you would get a thousand different answers. That was more exciting to me than everyone walking out with one take-home idea on how to be a better leader, how to be more creative? How to adapt to change? If I could, if I could change the the molecules in the room for forty five minutes, then they have their own takeaways, and they take away something maybe that to do better with their spouse, maybe that they want to do with their kids, maybe at work as a leader in their community. That was more exciting to me than uh, three main points.
1: Yeah, <laughs> me too. And I, I try to provide points and the theater when I when I speak. I think it's important. That you change the molecules in the room, right? I mean, we know we generally know what we need to do next. It's having the audacity and the wisdom and the insight to actually take action on it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's part of what you provide when you when you paint the very first one you did. <clears throat> I'm assuming you walked on stage. There were some butterflies floating around in in the uh, in the stomach that day.
0: Uh, yes, I'm sure there was, um, and that was just over time. And I don't know when those butterflies went away or if they go away, they're still, um, I just channel them differently. And I was telling you earlier, I grew up with an athletic background. And so I almost, uh, would treat speaking engagements like an athletic event. Uh, that's how I would prepare. That's how I would, um, research and develop and train for a specific event. Coming up, and then mm-hmm. as we would get closer, twelve hours, six hours, one hour, seven minutes, one minute. I would treat it as if I was about to take the field, or in my case, I was also a wrestler. I was about to go mano a mano in a a very challenging situation. Um, but I, I I loved that. I welcomed that. I wanted that. And I was, you know, I, I guess also a hit the ball to me, coach, kind of guy. Is I, I sort of saw myself then as wanting to. Um, champion this message uh, more so than I wanted to champion my brand or my identity and I think that was also helpful in that I didn't want to be a speaker or an artist I wanted to be a a translator of a message that I thought was
1: um, really powerful what what is that what was and what is that message that you want to translate that you want to bring to life
0: that everyone, and and we need to define creativity, but that everyone is creative, but that it actually takes incredible uh, mental toughness and discipline by which to be able to activate it. Because it's it's hidden in our um, uncertainties of life. And the quietness of life, those things which we haven't allowed to enter in or that we haven't valued appropriately. We, we again, value meritocracy. We value achievement. We value success. We value the three Ps. Um, I valued the three Ps. And so this was just a different perspective on what I, I viewed and kind of saw myself as um, maybe a, an undercover ambassador for the kingdom of love that i could use this space this platform that had been given you know this keynote speaking space um that i saw a gaping void of authenticity and kind of humanity hadn't been been covered at this corporate level and so i went in and i had all my good you know corporate material because i knew how to write the the language for what corporate wanted to pull the trigger and say yeah we want him i had my slick marketing material and demo reel um but it was then when I took the stage. I always surprised everyone, including the meeting planner, <laughs> including the the vice president that brought me in, um, and fortunately, delightfully surprised them to the upside. Not no, this, <laughs> not this isn't what we ordered, um, but it's just a matter of changing the language um, from a spiritual, holistic tone into words and traction that we can sink our teeth into, like adapting to change, like overcoming adversity. When we hear those words, we, yes. When we start talking about expanded consciousness, meditation, spirituality, love, we kind of like lose a, whoa, 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 that's for Sunday morning, you know, hang on partner. Mm -hmm. So how could I, how could I get into that space using their language? And so that was, that was an art form for me, more so than the paintings I did, was how can I connect to other people's hearts, minds, and souls through the art of language and music and video, so that was kind of my m o from early on is that we're all creative. we just need to be very disciplined in how we approach just like uh, and so I say creativity is a discipline it's a it's a lens by which to see the world that we can either choose to have on or we can choose to have off, and most of us choose to have it off because it's un we, we i can't draw mm-hmm. um you know i'm, I'm not a pract- i'm not an accomplished dancer or musician or i don't understand when you know when i go to the uh modern art museum that just doesn't make sense to me the the lyrics in that song are you know i don't know that i agree with all of those systematically in my understanding of uh how i've been raised and so we judge art um, more than we create art, mm. we're more critics than creators. And so my invitation is, is that all of this critique can become a creator, and then it opens up an entirely new, exciting world to us. Just like so, creativity is a discipline. Putting on that, just like gratitude is a discipline. That's right. It is a choice. Joy is a discipline, it's a choice, not what happens to us from the outside, but how we choose to to drive ourselves from the inside. And so that's really um, how I view creativity, and that's how I encourage others to embrace it like they embrace the choice to do these other hard things that sometimes um, don't feel natural, in that space of gratitude, in that space of of joy, amidst unkindness, injustice, um, to have empathy when, we see such um, disconnect uh, in the world. Uh, that is something that fascinates me because that's not who we are. We were designed to be connected to one another. Mm-hmm. And so why are we becoming so increasingly disconnected? Why are we becoming so increasingly tribal that we're having to protect and defend, justify our our being, regardless whether we are in the world? And so rather than wag my finger and say, hey... You guys are all wrong. I'm like, I wanted to be the change I wanted to see in the world. And so that's um, been what I've wanted to do is just kind of be that reflection or that ambassador uh, for this ideology, but not let anyone know that that's what I'm I'm actually doing. We'll keep it just between
1: the two of us. This is between the three of us now, people. There we go you the event i saw you you painted uh, a phenomenal portrait you essentially dropped the, the 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 paintbrush looked out at the audience and the question you asked was how many of you are artists and like four hands went up and there were a lot of people there It wasn't like six people and, and you know 75 put their hands up there were a lot of folks and four hands went up mm-hmm. and then your point was when you were younger and I, if I were to ask you that question in kindergarten, in first grade, how many of you would have raised your hands? And, of course, every hand mm-hmm. pops up. Why does every hand go up when we are children? And I'm going to follow it immediately with, why do four hands go up when we are adults? Uh, great question. Uh, and
0: the, the reason is, is it would be our voice of judgment. So around the age of four, five, six, the time that we go to school, the time that we interact with others, our art becomes open to public opinion. Prior to that, it was just surrounded by our parents supporting us. Oh, we love your drawing. You love imagination. You just keep going. Mm -hmm. And then you begin um, to create something at school in a public environment. And you're again affirmed or unconfirmed for how realistic, how photorealistic was this drawing. Those children that were able to kind of capture photorealism at an early age organically were told they were artists. Those who couldn't put down their pencil and went to math or history or uh, something more concrete that they could be affirmed for. And so it really happened very early on. Our educational system is set up to reward reading, writing, and arithmetic. Um, And then once you're done with that, we can you know, consider a budget for the arts or for athletics. But school was meant for uh, becoming more analytical and less creative, less whole-minded, less of a, I think, a whole thinker. Um, It made us less open to mastering complexity. Uh, It made us less open to navigating ambiguity. It made us less open um, to... We wanted Scantron tests, we wanted four answers and we'll select one, not an open question, that's too much, it's too nebulous. Um, A blank sheet of paper, we'd prefer the coloring book that had, so we know how to color it in, a blank sheet of paper becomes overwhelming and intimidating. And so that's where it started to shut down very early on. Uh, That's why hands went up when you're children because you can do anything and I love creating, I love drawing, singing, painting, running, playing. But it systematically was kind of learned out of us through this system. And even by well-meaning parents, well-meaning school teachers, but that's all they know is this system of progressing forward in education, which is important. It's not at the expense of this, but it's it's in addition to. So not letting that part of our being fold. It's working them both together equally
1: uh, alongside each other through the process. Mm so you you know you you're preaching the kingdom of love and you're encouraging people to answer the question "Yes and" mm-hmm. not only when they are in kindergarten and completely open to life's limitless possibilities, but at age thirty six and forty nine and seventy two and at each step along the way, how do we begin making that pivot back to the freedom that we had once when we were kids? It's still there, but how do how do we pull that back out of us?
0: That is that change of mindset, and you call it i think awakening from living an accidental life. And that's really what I'm doing is we're we're kind of locked in on autopilot. We get up, we go to work, we come home, we go to bed five days a week, as my old friend John Alston used to say. Um, and we get into this uh, kind of autopilot drone version of what we could be uh, our children do it through systems and and we need systems and structure but that's not an almighty system it's a it's an enabler to allow us to be more expansive not a disabler where we're bound to lists and systems and schedules and so i like to use both but understand the the relevance and the goodness of of both and so how do people do it they have to shift their operating system, the the way by which they view the world from a viewpoint of scarcity into a viewpoint of abundance, that we have enough, we are enough, we have the opportunity to give unconditional love and service to others without losing any value ourselves. That system's not taught. Um, And so I feel like, how can I create a message around making that more exciting where we want to live in a world of abundance? I think everyone does desire to live in a world of abundance, but we're trained to live in a world of scarcity where we need to accomplish more to get more. Um, And I think there's some value to understanding that, but we cannot understand grace. We cannot understand unconditional love until we let go of that ideology of scarcity and that we've got to earn our value as a human being through what we perform on paper, what our net worth is, what college our children are going to, um, what kind of car I drive. So it's, it's turning that value back into um, abundance as opposed to scarcity. And that's really where creativity starts is this point of that shift into giving. That is love to me. That is creativity. That is gratitude. That is art. That's the metaphor for how our spiritual selves um, manifest itself in physical beings is through is through art, through that connectivity. And so there, there's a whole mind-body-spirit connection that has drawn me toward that it's not just art for creating a painting that someone's gonna hang on their wall and look at periodically. It's about creating messaging and an experience that art is kind of just a cool hook or a memory for or gives traction to what has they've heard
1: so right right now eric there are executives and hr directors there are nurses there are uh retirees staring into their podcast receiver wondering how in the world do i begin making this shift Mm -hmm. i'm not in first grade anymore eric i've got a busy life i've got responsibilities i've got lanes that i've got to stay clearly in right now in my life speak to them just for a moment on how they can begin pivoting not losing this aspect of their life but gaining and expanding and becoming an even better version of themselves And
0: that's is it's not again either or is it's not you might want to look at your life and what you value a good SWOT analysis on your personal brand uh maybe you want to look at your legacy uh are you understanding that? Are you living what you've referred to as the life of success or a life of significance? And I think as we age, we have to go through certain processes and hardships and suffering in our life to understand what's truly most important to us and uh, a certain element of order which we're all raised, or most of us are raised within those who who aren't raised with a system of order, have it even more difficult. Those who've been marginalized or don't have the basic necessities or needs of life are kind of born into disorder. But I think we Mm -hmm. need to start with a system of of order and then experience some sort of disorder, some sort of event, some sort of hardship, some sort of suffering, some sort of unexpected event in our lives. One of your uh, earlier podcasts talk about the, the, you know, a bend in life that changes the trajectory of what the future is going to look like. And again, we define these moments, some of, them, some of us call them very bad, tragic, horrible. Some of us define them as epiphanies, moments to step into a life awakened. And so it usually doesn't happen until after someone experiences an event in their life that they don't longer have control over, uh, usually something financially, relationally, or health is we experience some sort of rocking of our core foundation that makes us realize that they long for something more. So your listeners right now that have it all figured out and are succeeding in all of their areas, there's no longing for something more, something greater. That's cool. You, you may um, need this later on. You might be going into an event later on, so don't tune out entirely.
1: Um, let well, I me mean, let me just clarify. You will need this later <laughs> on. Er- Eric's lying to you if he says you might have a tragedy. I was, in I your was future. trying to I was trying to soften the blow. I have some bad news. We're, we're all mortal. I, we're, none of us walk out of this thing fully alive. Yeah. So, uh,
0: well, and some of us are going through it right. right now. And right now is a really difficult time. And it might be that moment that they want to return to a more human, whole, loving, empathetic, creative. Version of themselves. That's the first step, and none of this happens without that realization, because the glasses, the lens of creativity, doesn't go on until we choose for them to go on, and for then us to see the world around us a little bit differently. So the first, um, the first step is understanding the value of why. Why is creativity, love, giving, all of those are an act of creation why are they important and then once you understand how connected they are art no longer is can i draw really good can i take a good photograph do i do i look good when i dance with my spouse it's it's this exploration of getting comfortable with being uncomfortable can i get out and dance (laughs) with my wife and let go of my ego and those who are looking at me and judging me, and can I just enjoy her goodness and my ability to move to the music and be inspired by this moment and not let the critics or my own internal voice of judgment stop me from the pure enjoyment of this movement with someone that I love?
1: I love it. <laughs> so that, that's something we adults can advance toward. Talk to us who have kids. I know you have three boys. Mm-hmm. We have three, my wife and I. And we have a little girl. What I've noticed is you know, I love art, Eric. I, I uh I believe I'm an artist. I really do. I, I love creating, I love painting, I love drawing. My boy Jack, who is 12, draws with me the least. Then it's Patrick who is 10. Henry a little bit draws with me. Now he's eight. Grace is she's out like on my lap almost every night, and we're we're creating artwork together. Mm-hmm. I'm concerned if I keep if I don't begin parenting and leading and encouraging differently. I'm going to lose all four of my artists. Mm -hmm. And they're they're going to put their pens down for good at one point or another. How do I, and then how do our listeners, many of our listeners have kids themselves or grandchildren, how do we encourage the next generation to hold tight and hold fast that paintbrush?
0: Uh, And first thing would be, again, to understand the importance of of why we're talking about this. And that is that if art is the channel, that again, art is not about producing a product. It's not about what your... Sons or daughter produce, or the quality of the content they produce, or creating a finished product. It's about creating thinking. So when your sons doodle or draw, or you draw with them, they're they're thinking expansively. They're problem solving that which isn't being um, measured or judged at school for grades. They're just thinking. And so much. How much do we value uh, quietness? How much do we value rhythm? How much do we value the process of creating and thinking and connecting different ideas? And so for parents, what do I tell them is that we artists are commissioned to create. That is, we are under contractual obligation for many artists. I I don't do this, but artists who make money or who sell their artwork, they create a piece of artwork and then the public or an art broker, um, values that art and then gives them money for their art. And so what I, rather than money is I encourage parents to commission their children to create. Mm. Um, so if you paint me a picture of what you want to be when you grow up, I'll take you out for ice cream. If you write me a poem about how much your mother means to you, I'll take you to Chuck E. Cheese or eat whatever. Insert that, that was when my kids were, were young. It's still, it's still popular in our okay. family. So, um, don't judge. And yeah, and don't, I we're, I, I eat cleaner now. <laughs> so those of you who, who wouldn't take your children to ice cream or Chuck E. Cheese fair, uh, find other activities that like them. And maybe you would take them to a Cardinals game. Maybe you would uh, take them to a concert, uh, a concert, a concert. That they are attracted to, that you're taking one for the team and you're taking them to see Disney on ice or uh, T-Swizzle or whoever it is that our children are fascinated with, that you will commission them to create and create from a blank canvas, Mm. create from a blank space, put on a play for me with your friends. We're going to videotape this. We're going to put this up, have them write um, uh, scripts. Uh, write character, character development, have uh, a protagonist, have these different things that they're having to explore and connect their mind differently than they do in school. So that our parents should become commissioners of, or patrons for the arts by commissioning their children, not because the art's going to be great, because that makes them a Greater depth of thinking, not just width, knowing more and more about a lot of the different things which school teaches us. Um it teaches us depth, how to go deep into concepts or ideas or frustrations or opportunities, things we love, things we don't love. Art becomes an expression or a metaphor for that which we're we're feeling. And it becomes an incredible spot as a parent to be able to dialogue with our children about, Why did you choose that color for uh, that flag or for that fort or for that princess's dress or that dragon? Whatever it is, we can ask questions, and they always have reasons that tell us more about how they're feeling inside, not what they're thinking in their head. I am sad. I am happy. It gives us greater insight to who they are and who their spirit is as a young individual.
1: Mm. You're big into spontaneity. Mm -hmm. You write about it. You live it why does spontaneity matter to us because that's where
0: life happens Uh, life happens between the cracks and we need to get um better conditioned at experiencing uncertainty whether that comes in the form of setbacks or even opportunity that we don't get too nervous um, or butterflies when good things are about to happen uh, and that we don't become too laden or burdened when bad things happen so when Uh, spontaneity is like a little mini lab Mm. by which to be able to practice living present in the now, uh, spontaneously going to a movie, spontaneously, um, staying home, spontaneously accepting a neighbor's invitation to come over for dinner, spontaneously breaking outside of a perceived schedule to give in to the goodness of an individual moment that wasn't scripted or wasn't on our calendar.
1: (laughs) (laughs) for those watching right now I'm, I'm like high-fiving him over <laughs> over the microphones cuz right on another word that you use quite a bit in your writing and speaking it's one of my favorites surrender mm. which is the opposite I think of what most of us live in out the 3 P's and I'm 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 one of them mm. frequently mm-hmm. what we believe is important and yet you hold fast to it or you let go of it maybe I should say mm. more appropriately talk about surrender and why you think that matters not only as an artist but as a leader in life
0: it's it's in an- ongoing, um, it's not something we achieve. It's an ongoing process of surrender. I feel like that is what makes a, uh, let's start with successful nucleus for relationship or for marriage. It's about surrendering into a greater identity or being of what marriage can be, not what it is currently. And, you know, either experiencing Uh, intimacy or friction in the moment. It's we're both surrendering into each other to become a better version of what we both have. That's why we get married. That's This concept of marriage is experiencing hardship between ourselves, not so that we can give up and quit, but so that we can grow from it and move towards this greater identity of a beautiful marriage. And so that is surrendering to what I had idealized as what my wife was going to be or what I was going to experience as a husband. So surrender. Surrendering in life um, to what my idea for what I thought financially I was going to be worth um, versus what I'm really worth or um, whether that brings me joy or pain. Surrendering to those moments starts to build our muscles towards being able to surrender when life, as you said, will hit us later and will bend the trajectory of where we're going um, to prepare ourselves in advance. Because that's what happened to me when I was 30, is I wasn't prepared. I was an alpha dog. I was very successful, but I hadn't been given any tools by which to um, deal with hardship. And so it blindsided me. And once my fort was taken away, once my structure was taken away, the foundation was taken away, I didn't know how to build again. And so that's why I had to relearn a lot of these things through the art of surrender um, to be able to build a new foundation on a different perspective or
1: worldview of abundance. You were given the gift of a blank canvas at 30. Yeah. I mean, Candidly, you lost yeah. everything uh, except your health and your wife and the health of your babies. And that's a pretty powerful, strong place to begin rebuilding from. When you look at a blank canvas today, what's your process for creating something that has never in the history of the world been created before? And uh, and, and, and asking the question, I, I'm looking for your artistic process here, but realizing that each day when we get out of bed, give thanks for it, you have an opportunity as a listener to create something that's never been created before. So I, I think your answer, Eric Wall, to this will impact not only how you design and how you create but maybe on how the rest of us can look toward our future. Sure. And it it
0: happened again in, in that changing of perspective is all of a sudden when I opened up my myopic viewpoint of what success was supposed to be, how I defined it and opened it up, all of a sudden everything that I took in, I took in a little bit differently. And I took it in uh, and I'm going to speak specifically to um, not, just those initial moments, I took those in as a, as an artist and explorer, but once I started to translate this message, everything that I saw, whether it was a keynote presentation, a live performance in the theater, a street musician uh, out on the streets of San Francisco, a movie, a conversation with my wife, they would all become uh, almost material for what I would want to share. Life became... Uh, an experience where I just wanted to capture these ideas that were happening because I wanted to share them at a greater scale. And so I, I just would all of a sudden take all of these connections from different places to be able to kind of aggregate them and then to translate them to these specific audiences, whoever they would be. But that was, it It was opening up to see the goodness of art being everywhere, beauty being everywhere. Uh, The opportunities for relationship and love and empathy um, being everywhere. And they were hidden in plain sight. But I was too busy before, too focused, too successful to even be
1: able to see them. Well, where you left it is a perfect pivot to what you're trying to teach the rest of us to do. You not only create these incredible works, and we'll have links to your work on on our show notes, you also occasionally surrender them to the community in something called an art drop. What is an art drop? (laughs)
0: That's a, that's a bigger concept. So I don't sell any of my artwork. I never have. Um, That was a personal choice by myself. You know, and I'm, I'm in a very uh, grateful position as an artist that I I make um, enough to knock out the rent um, on my professional career of keynote speaking that I don't need to charge money for my art. And so I've never commoditized it, but I've, I've also always thought you, you can't really put a price on cool. And <laughs> so if I create and destroy, you know, so I create just for the sake of creating and then throw it away, that was interesting, that this wasn't uh, created forever, um, which is what I do with a lot of my art, or that I would, uh, some, the finished art, I will give oftentimes to auction for charity or uh, some foundation. They'll raise good money for a great cause but sometimes as i'm traveling i uh yeah i i hide a piece of artwork somewhere in the world and then i will geocache it in an online treasure hunt so <laughs> people who who know our brand know my art know our story they kind of stay tuned periodically to some of the social media outlets that i post on where i'll post a clue on where one of my hidden uh paintings randomly is and they'll have to piece together these these clues to find the eyes. That keeps me entertained on the road. Me too.
1: <laughs> I, I love, I love the, tracking you online. Yeah. For those who aren't following you currently, where can they learn more? You know, wh- I don't, where's
0: the, I, it, well, the artvision.com is my website, that's, whatever you're, if you're on LinkedIn, Twitter, uh, whatever, whatever social media channel has not offended you. Uh, t- today, go, go to that one. Perfect.
1: <laughs> I think that's the, uh, the, the honing pigeon yeah, is yeah. that's about all that's left. You can't put a price on cool. That's a great takeaway. Demarius. He's a little boy who uh, was the recipient of one of your works in, in uh, one of the art drops. It's a, cha- I don't know if you remember the story. Do you remember the story? I, I let me let me fill yeah, in a couple points. Re- so then re- remind you'll, you'll think of me there.
0: I've had I have had a number of wonderful stories, but remind me about Demaryius. You
1: might have been in D.C. It might have been a picture of Martin Luther King Jr. <laughs> know, and it, it might have been seated there at the footsteps of this incredible monument for hours, with people walking by observing, and thinking, "Oh, this is really special." Part of the the, the, the deal. And then this little guy named De- Demarius is just there observing it when a gust of wind, spontaneity, in other words, mm-hmm. blows this thing over. He helps set it back up. And then in setting it back up, he sees the note on the back like, hey, finders keepers, congratulations. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that experience? I remember
0: it very well. It was in Atlanta, Georgia. It was at the Martin That's Luther right. King That's right. monument. And so it was, this was an early art drop where I was dropping, I was hiding a piece of artwork there as a an experiment that if I put up a finished painting of Martin Luther King Jr. at the Lincoln or at the uh, MLK Memorial, how would people react to it? Would they um, interact with it? Would they t- not touch it? And so I just left it there for hours and hours seeing what people would do. And it wasn't until yeah he was looking at it and the painting actually blew over <laughs> and he saw written on the back, you know, finders keepers, uh, first person to find this piece of art gets to keep it. And he all of a sudden, like with his mom, was he's like, Do you do you think? <laughs> and they sort of didn't understand it at first. And then they started to get excited. And then I actually came out at that point and said, Congratulations. You know, for for six hours, people have been walking by this, taking pictures with it. Um, you're the first person to kind of interact with it. And so you this is yours. This is yours because you earned it. You explored further. And the wind helped him explore, but that was kind of the genesis. Uh, one of life, the early, right early art drops was um, driven from behavioral science. How do people interact with street art, with art in general? And so that was, it was drawn from an experiment and became more of a, a fun activity.
1: Well, brother, you, you have uh, various skill sets of the artist, including writing. You've written several books. I've had the good fortune of reading several of them. <clears throat> I have two of them with me right now. <laughs> there they are. And I'm, I am the author of a book called On Fire. <clears throat> One of the great joys for me was the final chapter for me in writing the book was not actually at the end of the book. It's at the, at the very beginning of the book. It's something we, uh, we artists who uh, write called The Dedication. So I'm, I'm going to have you read from Unthink Your Dedication. <laughs> and before you speak to it, I may have you read one more line from, uh, from another book, too. So go ahead and read uh, The Dedication in Unthink.
0: <clears throat> uh, so this was 2013, and I, my uh, wife, Tasha, and I had really in many sense, I, I would say, co-written this book together. So I would uh, write, and she would help me edit and hone. Um, and then without her knowledge... Um, I added to the book uh, and sent to the publisher and told them to please keep this a secret until it actually releases, until the actual release date. So it wasn't until she received the first copy in the mail uh, that she was read the dedication. And uh, it says, this is my dedication. They say that dedicating a book is one of the most exquisite acts of love that one can perform. Without hesitation, I dedicate this book to my artistic inspiration, Uh, My best friend, my unconditional lover, my wife of 18 years, Tasha. Uh, Come hell or high water, I will forever dance through the minefields and long to be tangled up in your arms. And um, this is actually the uh, the PG version of what I had written. I'd written it was basically a love note, an honest love note to my wife um, that I wanted the world to see. And my publisher got it, and they said, "This is incredible. Can we just tweak this or say this phrase a little bit differently?" And uh, that was where I, as an artist, I'm like, "But that's really what I wanted to say. I want us to 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 feel that deeply, feel that intimacy." Um, and they said, "We understand that, but for the consuming public, we need to change that just a little bit." So it, this is—I still stand behind it. It's still um, beautiful, and what I really meant but it's no longer um, 18 years now. It's 23 years, and uh, she still fulfills every single one of these pieces of uh, who I am, what our message is, and how and why we want to share it with the
1: the world. Well, and um, we're we're switching books right now. For those of you listening, you can't watch it. For those of you watching, you're loving it. Just last year, another book came out, and this time you have an opportunity to dedicate it—you know—to maybe one of the children, parents, a great art teacher, former business owner, who knows, coach John O'Leary. I think that sounds <laughs> nice. Maybe your next book to, to John O'Leary, my friend and hero. But you—you you made this one a dedication as well to uh, to a friend, and I w- I'd like you to read this one too, Eric. And this is going somewhere. Mm-hmm. I hope. But uh, read your dedication in the book. Yeah, so I I haven't haven't
0: read this in in quite a while, so I'll hopefully not stumble through. But I I will also say that I went through that very process of... The first book was dedicated, and um, it was a very special dedication. That dedication meant more to me than the book itself um, because of of the significance of it and how it was received um, by my wife as a surprise uh, on the day the book launched. Uh, and so, as I kind of came around, as I was looking for who'd help me with this book, who'd been my um, inspiring, and there's l- there's a lengthy, lengthy list. And those of you who are familiar with Richard Rohr um, know that he's been a great uh, influencer of mine, a great friend of mine, and almost a, uh, I would all say a, a spiritual director of mm. my wife and I. So well, that's a strong spiritual director. It is, and we're I'm very grateful because. Um, I've been deeply impacted by uh, his work, which really is uh, drawing from all over the world, drawing from St. Francis and Rumi and Plato and Buddhists and Christians and Jews. And it's been an amazing place by which to take in new knowledge. And so there were ideas like that that came up that would make a lot of sense. And so as I took to this book. I finished this book. It it was time to write the dedication again. And I went through all these business leaders also that had been um, very helpful for me. I ended up uh, writing the book, uh, writing the dedication. This book, my love and my life are dedicated to my wife, Tasha. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Without you, there is no me. You are the primary promoter and protector of my relationship with creativity. Uh, This book is a reflection of our work together, the spark that gives meaning and the grind that gives passion to the strength of our marriage and the success of our business. And again, that meant more to me than everything in the book because that was what was personal to me and my gift to my wife, Tasha, who um, had helped me co-create this book. And so there really was not a more appropriate person to dedicate to than to double down On my wife and give her two. So that was an ended up being an easy decision after uh, quite a bit of reflection.
1: I think it's commonplace for many of us as we age to almost brag about the fact that we uh, endure our relationships at home. Like we're just kind of enduring life at home. And we talk about the ball and chain and the, the monotony or the misery of that life. You, my friend, are this example of a life that is not only on fire, but deeply, passionately still in love with a partner, a spouse, a co-creator. When you have an opportunity to describe your wife to a friend, who they haven't met her yet, they haven't yet met Tasha, what do you say? I first say you're going
0: to love her um, because her personality is so kind. It is so generous, and it is infectious. And she's also very, very well read. And so um, she can speak to and meet others on their ground very quickly and become intertwined in their story. It's never about her or her story. And so she's she's a a great representative uh, for our team, uh, for others to come in contact with and to get a clearer shot of uh, what we're about, what our message is about, what she's about, what I'm about. Um, and so I'm excited uh, when people speak with her because they're getting a better sense. She really is, uh, like me, an, an ambassador for this kingdom of, of love and really supportive for those who also want to go into that that journey.
1: So we're always trying to, trying to invite fascinating guests onto our podcast. Eric Wall has been one of the names on top of the list for a long time. When we finally got through to your, in quotes, people, uh, one of my, in quotes, people was talking to a woman named Tasha. And as we're figuring out dates and will it work, will it not work? Can he make it? It it comes out during this conversation. Oh yeah, by the way, Eric's my husband. (laughs) Like we we had no idea during this long communication chain that you two were together. And one of the things that inspired my colleague that I have the good fortune, Abby, of listening, of, of working with every day, is how compassionate, how loving, how vibrant Tasha was in all the communications, whether by phone or through email. And I think that's an incredible representative to have for your organization. And then to learn that she's your bride and that you're best friends, and here she is outside of the studio, mm-hmm. you know, still representing and still passionately in love with her spouse. For those of us who are in a relationship, and maybe we are high five. it's a honeymoon-type experience right now. Because mm-hmm. I think relationship and marriage, it's a little like weather. There are ups and downs. It's not speaking to climate. That's a longer-term issue going on, but weather's up and down. For those of us enduring seasons that are a little rougher right now, what might you say to uh, to reignite that, mar- that marriage, that relationship, that love? Right, that it's um, less about focusing
0: on the other person or yourself directly, and it's about putting out this idea of why we got married in the first place we got married because we wanted to lift each other up we wanted to help the other person become the very best possible version of themselves that they could be so again we at that time when we knelt at the altar or were joined together we surrendered to this idea of marriage uh, that we could become something better as two that couldn't be achieved as one. That's why we do this. And so then we enter into this relationship with excitement, with love, with lust. Um, and it is exciting. And it is really exciting. It's really awesome. And I don't want to take away from that because there's such beauty in that. That's what brings us together. But that also like uh, like going to the gym, we look for resistance when we go to the gym. We don't want an easy workout. We want it to be difficult. We want to be pushed. We want to meet resistance. We want to be stressed. We want to experience sweat and hardship so that we can get stronger. So if we look at marriage, kind of at that same context of going to the gym, it's not that we want hardship or friction between each other, but that is where you grow. That's where you get stronger is when you experience something difficult. Something where your expectations weren't met. Maybe you let your spouse down in some way and you surrender that idea of I've been hurt, you've been hurt into how do we make this a stronger marriage? So it's again, amplifying the idea of a connected union and less my spouse is this or I'm not this. And so that's really where I'm, I'm, we as, as a couple are lifting up that idea of marriage because we experience hardship. We experience those, we're, we're not absolved from them. We experience them probably as much as everyone else, but it's how we act and react as a result of those um, kind of bumps mm-hmm. in the road. Uh, is how we define marriage. We also, this is actionable takeaway, uh, kind of like the um, commissioning your kids, is we early on decided that we would never slam a door uh, behind us and we would never speak even questionably about our spouse um, in public. So we would never, words would never come out like the ball and chain or this or my wife needs this or I need to be home. I'm, I'm So I, we just... We took that language out, so the possibility was never there. We would always speak positively about our spouse because they're they're part of us. they're They're part of that connection of greater marriage, not weighing us down or holding me back, or they' they want union. We should want union. That's why we got married. Marriage is a privilege that we need to go through hardship, um, some suffering, some darkness, some unmet expectations by which to be able to grow stronger and grow closer together.
1: Mm. So let me provide another actionable takeaway. I hope last year, I, one of the things I desired was to have the best marriage at the end of the year that I've ever had in my entire marriage. And so in thinking through and reflecting and praying over. So what can I do for Beth? That would really set us up to, to achieve that, to really say, I do loud and clear louder than ever. So on January one of 2017, I wrote her a love letter in a journal, a nice leather-bound journal, and I I tracked the things she did that day that were really awesome. And I did the the same on January 2nd and January 3rd, and I never told her. Not on January 4th or 5th or May 13th or May 14th. And on Christmas morning last year, I had this little book wrapped up, and she opens it. And movie tickets fall out, artwork that our kids make fall out, Trips to places we've gone together as a couple, all this, it's a junky book now full of chicken scratch. You know, guys, those of you who know me, I don't even have fingers. Mm-hmm. So my handwriting, it's not all that perfect, but the artwork within it was. And I, I love nothing more today than walking by our bedroom with a, with a child or so and hearing her laugh in her bedroom. I turn to the right and I look and she's reading this journal. And it's a stuff that I saw her do that was worthy. And frequently in life, we see the stuff they do, they were late, mm-hmm. they complained, mm-hmm. they argued about this, whatever. And it's so minor. And you talk a lot about about the big picture and the small picture and how we kind of get lost in the two. Um, I want to I wanna just stop you for a yeah. moment
0: there for your listeners and say two things happened there. Number one was a choice. You made a decision starting January 1 that you had this goal of wanting a better relationship at the end of the year than now. So you had that awareness. And then secondly, you were disciplined is you had to find ways by writing them down. You had to look for them, go out of your way yes. to look for them, to find where your wife had been done something that, was you wanted to note for later. And so that decision and that discipline created the action and the delight for your wife for now a lifetime to come. So for creativity, it comes from a decision and then action, from a strengthened relationship, decision, then action, from uh, you know whatever it is that be, become more grateful. It's decision and then action. The spark and the grind, the yin and the yang, they're intertwined. And so as your listeners are kind of connecting the dots here, connect them back to what John just said as decision and then action to create a greater painted picture, a greater goal of wanting your kids to be better, wanting your wife to feel more supported, wanting to become a more compassionate community leader. Mm. Um, All of those things are decision and then action.
1: Beautiful. And thank you for summing that up. You ask your audience members frequently, and this is going to be my final question before we pivot to the Live Inspired 7. So start getting nervous I'm, right now, man, because it's coming. I'll start loosening up. Woo, all right. You ask them, why do you do what you do? Why, why, why do you work where you work? Why do you, why do you do the things you do throughout the course of the day? And, and you, you love hearing their answers back to you. So my question, Eric Wall, painter, graffiti artist, writer, husband, lover, friend, creator, sojourner, believer. Uh, why do you do what you do? You've been doing this now for almost two decades. 100 corporate gigs a year. It's exhausting. It is tiring and it's gratifying. But why do you do the work that you do? Because I believe in it. Because I
0: have had the privilege of experiencing um, chapters of my life in such a, a deep and significant way for me that I wanted to make them available and share them with others, because I really hadn 't seen it being done there there i didn 't have you know I had mentors and leaders um, that gave me partial looks at what I thought i this could be, but I just wanted to connect it for myself. I wanted to be a seeker and both to be learning and then translating at the same time and so I, this is a dynamic journey. What I talked about fifteen years ago is not what I talk about now is not what I would have talked about when I was a teenager, and it's not going to be what I talk about 15 years from now. It is living, breathing, actual metaphor for what I would... I I think we all have the potential to step into living this um, awakened experience of life that it is a decision to step into. And I I just see there's there's beautiful non-confrontational ways, non-tribal ways, non-territorial ways to step into that. But it takes some decisions and movement on our part by which to be able to do that.
1: Mm. Well, my friend, uh, we have had the pleasure of having an awful lot of guests on our podcast. And all of them have been asked the following seven questions that you are about to be asked. So this is a safe, well-traveled path. So get ready for it. Number one to Brother Eric Wall, what is the best book that you've ever read?
0: Well, it, for me, it would be the most influential book, and that comes at specific times in our life. Uh, the most influential book on me uh, was The Soul of Money that I read um, after I lost all my money uh, at age 30. Uh, it's written by Lynn Twist. I don't think it was a blockbuster or national bestseller. It didn't top any charts, but it came to me at the right point, and it it changed my relationship with what had been a... Um, a dominant identity for me in the first half of my life. Um, so it's called the soul of money.
1: Tomorrow, you discover that your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at age 103, okay? Leaving you with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? I
0: I have the privilege of, um, you know, for whatever crazy reason, this career that I've taken on has kind of, set up our future fort in such a way that I don't need to um I, I don't I don't want a lot. I think that's been a lot of this is is decreasing my wants and needs has been the most fiscal uh conservative policy I can take on. And so I think my wife and I uh would collectively look for ways to use that to give to to others and just find an exciting way to build um, traction for someone else's vision that we could help fuel with uh, monetary resources.
1: If your house and studio caught fire and your wife, your three boys, and your two other boys are all out, all families out, all pets are out, and you have an opportunity to safely run back in and grab one item, what's that one item that you would come out of that burning house with?
0: One of my wife's 14 photo albums. Um, because I know how much she would want those and how happy she would be seeing my face or seeing her face (laughs) when I came out carrying what she would have gone in to get.
1: (laughs) And you're really getting brownie points. Like It's kind of bothering me, but I'm just going to move on. I'm not going to be a victim to this right now. There are a lot of us that can elevate ourselves as spouses. So we appreciate the reminder from you, Eric Wall. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous, perfect day, Overlooking a beach and have a long conversation with anybody living or dead, who would you want to be sitting on that bench with
0: uh, with Saint Francis of assisi uh, I would want to uh, I would want to learn from him because he he came from a life of privilege and chose a life of connectedness, mm. and so I would want to um, talk with him about that transition, that experience, and how he became St. Francis of Assisi that I, I honor so much.
1: Well, one of the words I think he would use would be the word surrender, and it's one that you use and one that you model. What's the best advice that St. Francis or anybody else has ever given you? The best advice,
0: be present. And that's for each listener to to take their own interpretation from that. But that's been my uh, best advice that I've been given. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Don't be so protective of your ego or so guarded um, around shaping of this identity that you have no idea what this future person is really supposed to be doing in their life. And so for you to think you know this at age 20 is... um, a recipe for um, challenges.
1: Eric Wall, philanthropist, entrepreneur, painter, leader, husband, father, friend. It has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? Servant. Eric Wall, servant, it has been (laughs) a pleasure to spend some time with you today on the Live Inspired podcast. What a treat it is to uh, have followed your work for years and now to have the honor to sit across from you to meet you in your own home turf, in your own studio, and to share your message of creativity and vibrancy in life with our community.
0: Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for any and all listeners that have have stayed tuned to the very end (laughs) having no idea who i am or what this message is about or never heard anything i'm just grateful that you would listen all the way to the end that you would take the time to come here to my backyard san diego so um just for me to close in in gratitude to you to your listeners uh to this opportunity so thank you to all of you
1: well my friends that was eric wall this is john o'leary and today is your day Live inspired. My friends, I am recording this from my favorite spot back home on my back porch. It's a place I spend time with my wife and my kids. It's also a place I come to spend time alone to reflect, to journal, to create videos to share with you. And it was my honor when I visited Eric for the interview you just listened to that he took me to his favorite spot Check out the video of my behind-the-scenes tour of Eric's personal art studio in the show notes. You can find that at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. Again, it's JohnO'LearyInspires.com. You're going to love the video. Now, please, don't forget to rate and review the Live Inspired podcast. It is the number one way that other people will learn and be able to follow our show. My goal is to have 200 reviews by the end of this month. Will you help me get there? Rate the show today. Leave your positive reviews. It it does make a difference. And if you aren't already connected with me on social media and receiving my Monday morning newsletter, visit us again at JohnO'LearyInspires.com. I am so looking forward to seeing you next Thursday with a very, very special guest. He is the author of, drumroll please. Tuesdays with Maury, among several other number one international best-selling books. We have Mitch Album with us in the Live Inspired podcast, and it is going to be an amazing conversation. Can't wait to share his story with you next Thursday, my friends. For this time and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired.